Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to this installment of our Strategic Deterrence Forum. Putin's recent nuclear saber rattling and the strategic breakout of China's nuclear forces highlight the importance of a robust strategic deterrent. The new national defense strategy and the nuclear posture review will obviously be important setting vectors on this front. With that, it's my honor to introduce our guest for today, the Honorable David Trachtenberg. He's the Vice President of the National Institute for Public Policy, and he has over 40 years of experience in both the public and private sector. He previously served as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the previous administration. Before that, he also served as a Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy in the George W. Bush administration. Sir, I really want to thank you for joining us today. I'd like to give you a few thought minutes up front to offer some thoughts. So with that, over to you. Well, thank you very much, Doug, for the invitation to be here and for the kind introduction. Uh, I really do appreciate the opportunity to participate in this excellent series. Uh, I'd, I'd like to start, if I could, by briefly addressing two of our greatest deterrence challenges, uh, Russia and China. Uh, but I also want to note that I'm speaking in my personal capacity and my remarks do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Institute or any organization with which I am or have been associated. So let me start with Russia. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is a clear failure of deterrence and has demonstrated the shortcomings of what some have called deterrence by detection or deterrence by disclosure. Simply telling Russia we knew what they were up to by publicly releasing information about their military buildup on Ukraine's borders was clearly inadequate to prevent them from invading. Nor did the threat of severe sanctions serve as an effective deterrent, despite the president's recent comment that sanctions never deter. The Secretary of State declared the purpose of these sanctions is to deter Russian aggression. The Pentagon spokesman said, we believe there's a deterrent effect to sanctions. And the National Security Advisor stated, the president believes that sanctions are intended to deter. Clearly, they did not. I would suggest that where deterrence has worked is in limiting the parameters of the American response. Arguably, it is the United States that has been deterred. The US government has set red lines, only these red lines demarcate what the United States will not do. For example, the United States has made clear that no US troops will be sent to Ukraine. Ukraine is not a NATO member. There is no Article 5 commitment requiring us to defend it. No US special operations personnel will go to train Ukrainian forces in unconventional warfare. No transfer of Polish MiGs to Ukraine will be sanctioned because it could be seen by Russia as escalatory. No Patriot or THAAD defensive systems will be sent to Ukraine because they would require US operators, which could be seen as escalatory. A no-fly zone is out of the question because it would be escalatory and could lead to direct confrontation with Russia. Indeed, while Russia put its nuclear forces on special alert status and Vladimir Putin threatened the world with consequences you have never seen, the United States postponed and then canceled a previously planned routine Minuteman ICBM test launch out of concern that it could be seen as provocative and escalatory. Now, no one wants a direct conflict with Russia and there may be debatable reasons for not taking any of these actions, but saying so publicly may be interpreted by an opponent as weakness, or at least an unwillingness to risk escalation. Deterrence, I think, is more likely to fail if one side believes the other is unwilling to respond forcefully to its threats or actions. In addition, because Russia is a nuclear power, it seems as though the United States feels compelled to de-escalate and search for off-ramps that give Vladimir Putin a way to save face. The deterrence message this sends to aggressors everywhere is that the United States does not want to confront a major nuclear power directly because of fear that any such confrontation would mean, in the president's words, World War III. The proliferation aspects of this deterrence failure 
are also troubling. Why shouldn't hostile powers seek nuclear weapons to deter the United States from challenging their aggression? And why shouldn't allies seek their own nuclear arsenals as insurance against nuclear armed aggressors in the face of doubts over the credibility of the US extended deterrent? Indeed, would Russia have seized Crimea and invaded Ukraine if Kyiv had retained its legacy Soviet nuclear weapons? Moreover, the implications for deterrence of Russia's actions are global. The US response has not been lost on China, which sees Taiwan as a renegade province that needs to be brought under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. And like Ukraine, there is no Article 5-like legal obligation for the United States to come to Taiwan's defense should China decide the time is ripe for military action. Yet on numerous occasions, the United States has upheld the principle that wanton aggression by one state against another should not be allowed to succeed. And US troops have repeatedly been deployed as a symbol of America's commitment to this principle. What is different now, however, is that the aggressor is a nuclear armed one. One might be forgiven for questioning if the United States will act on principle only when the risks of escalation are small, when the opponent is a non-nuclear one, and when there is a legally binding treaty commitment to do so. If the US commitment to this principle is to be taken seriously by others, then doing what's right should not depend on whether there's a written legal obligation that compels the United States to act. Failing to act because there's no treaty obligation to do so may be perceived as an act of cowardice, not strength. Now, let me briefly turn to the Chinese nuclear buildup. In recent weeks, there's been more and more commentary on the possibility that China is laying the groundwork for the forceful unification of Taiwan with the mainland. Hardly a day goes by without a number of articles appearing, calling attention to China's increasingly provocative behavior and the growing threat it poses to Taiwan. Such an outcome would have global reverberations that could affect the credibility of US extended deterrence guarantees and generate new pressures for nuclear proliferation. The question that must be asked is how can the United States best deter Chinese military aggression against Taiwan by making the costs to China in Beijing's eyes outweigh any perceived benefits? This may involve military actions the United States can take, for example, bolstering our presence in the region or increasing military assistance to Taiwan. But it may also involve employing the other elements of state power, including using our economic leverage to increase China's pain threshold. The recent discovery of several new missile fields capable of hosting hundreds of MIRV ICBMs, as well as China's development of hypersonic weapons, which NORTHCOM and NORAD Commander General Glenn Van Herc recently stated outpaces US efforts tenfold, suggests China is going all out in its efforts to bolster its nuclear potential in ways that strengthen its ability to engage in nuclear coercion of the United States and US allies, especially on the issue of Taiwan. The Chinese foreign ministry official recently stated that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China's territory and warned ominously that China's national reunification and rejuvenation are an unstoppable trend. No one should estimate, underestimate the strong resolution, determination and capability of the Chinese people to safeguard national sovereignty and territorial integrity. He claimed that anyone trying to challenge China on this, quote, will be like trying to hold back the tide with a broom and is doomed to fail, end quote. Likewise, the Chinese propaganda outlet Global Times warned, if US military participates in a war, they will be annihilated. Whoever dares to cross China's red line on Taiwan is seeking its own death. Japan's defense minister recently commented that the balance of power between the US and China over Taiwan has become, in his words, skewed greatly in favor of China. He said the defense stability of Taiwan is very important not just for Japan's security, but for the stability of the world as well. And Admiral Richard, the head of US STRATCOM, has referred to the Chinese nuclear buildup as breathtaking, 
calling it a strategic breakout and inconsistent with a minimum deterrence posture. He said, China has correctly figured out that you cannot coerce a peer nation, in other words, us, from a minimum deterrent posture. Beijing, he said, is building the capability to execute any plausible nuclear employment strategy, the last brick in the wall of a military capable of coercion. But finally, I would note how the lessons learned from our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the way it was executed are being processed by China. As another Global Times editorial noted, from what happened in Afghanistan, Taiwan should perceive that once a war breaks out in the Straits, the island's defense will collapse in hours and the US military won't come to help. These developments suggest a dangerous and growing instability in the Indo-Pacific region that may greatly increase the risk of escalation leading to military confrontation. So what does all this mean for deterrence? Quite simply, I think it means our ability to deter major aggression is looking increasingly fragile and the credibility of US extended nuclear guarantees to others, the so-called nuclear umbrella, they look increasingly doubtful, at least in the eyes of those who count on the United States to come to their defense if necessary. Yet the Biden administration has reacted to these developments as though none of this matters. While both Russia and China increase their emphasis on nuclear weapons and continue to build up their nuclear arsenals, the Biden administration is proposing to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in US strategy and to cut critical nuclear deterrent capabilities. For example, the administration reportedly has decided to eliminate the nuclear armed sea launch cruise missile, SLICKM-N, proposed by the Trump administration, which would have helped close the gap in non-strategic nuclear capabilities and help prevent Russia or China from believing it has an exploitable nuclear advantage that would allow it to use nuclear weapons without fear of reprisal in kind. This is being done despite the stated and, and I believe unprecedented public opposition of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff, the commander of STRATCOM and the commander of UCOM. In addition, there are reports, the administration has decided to scrap the B-83 gravity bomb, a weapon with the capability to penetrate hard and deeply buried targets. I find the deterrence implications of this apparent decision somewhat troubling, especially in light of recent reports that Putin and the Russian leadership may be prosecuting the war in Ukraine from underground bunkers. In short, I think US deterrence policy is under intense stress. And it appears that decisions being made by the current administration are exacerbating that stress rather than relieving it. Both our friends and enemies are taking note. And hopefully the lessons they draw will not lead the world into another great power conflict. And I'll stop there with thanks again, Doug, for the opportunity to participate. So I really appreciate those thoughts. And I really wanna dive deeper into these issues right now. The, um, and picking from a theme you're, you're highlighting, you know, last year, STRATCOM Commander Admiral Chaz Richard said that China is at the point of a strategic breakout in terms of its ability to build and field nuclear capabilities. What does this mean for the United States and, and how does it or should it affect how we think about deterrence in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, well, I think the expansion of China's strategic nuclear capabilities does reflect a move away from its long declared policy of minimum deterrence. And it underpins China's more aggressive and assertive conventional posture in the region. Specifically, this includes China's challenging of the territorial claims of other nations in the region and the extensive buildup of military facilities on islands uh, in the South China Sea, for example. China has become more threatening to its neighbors uh, and sees its growing military might as a tool to coerce others. For the United States, this means we must rethink how best to deter China from aggressive actions, including any designs Beijing has on Taiwan. Uh, the National Institute for Public Policy is currently completing a study on how best to deter China from moving militarily against Taiwan. And I would argue that we must figure out 
how to change the Chinese leadership's deterrence calculus. So they conclude that the cost to them of ending Taiwan's autonomy is greater than allowing the status quo to continue. Uh, it's, it's very well put. You know, when you look at the region more broadly, how do you see our allies responding to these dynamics with, with the Chinese breakout? Well, I think our allies are, are increasingly understanding of the threat that China poses, not just to the United States, but to them as well. And I think it's incumbent upon the United States to work with our allies, uh, especially our allies in the region, uh, close friends, Japan, uh, Australia, other countries in the region, from Vietnam to the Philippines, to try to ensure that we can we have the capacity and the capability to deter any aggressive Chinese designs on the territorial sovereignty of any of those allies or on Taiwan. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it will take, it will take a, I believe, a significant effort uh, to do that, primarily because the United States uh, suffers from the disadvantage of both time and distance when it comes to the region. China is there. Taiwan is on its doorstep. In the United States, we are thousands and thousands of miles away from, from the region. It would take time to reposition forces in the region, simply, simply because of the distance they would have to cover, which is why working with friends, allies, strategic partners in the region, I think is so critical to bolstering uh, the deterrent capability that we have against Chinese uh, Chinese aggression. Yeah, and, and I think it hits too at the risk we're facing when we look at record low inventory numbers and, and key capabilities. I mean, you know, it's the, the smallest, oldest bomber fleet in, in generations. You know, cutting back on our fifth generation capacity. Those are things that would be crucial in those regions. And if they're too small to really have decent forward basing on, on a near permanent basis, it's, it's going to be very difficult, I think. So. I, I, I agree with you, Doug. It's very, it's very hard to, to maintain an adequate presence, uh, especially a naval presence, uh, when, when the number of ships we have is declining and our shipbuilding capacity is being exceeded by the numbers of ships that are being retired or, or put out of commission. Uh, now, I, I, I understand the capacity versus capability argument. I understand we may have very, very capable ships. But the, the Indo-Pacific region is a, an incredibly large area. We, I believe, we need presence. And the, and the way you get presence is, is to have the number of, of assets necessary to be able to demonstrate presence. Uh, and uh, frankly, that's, that's part of my concern in terms of our ability to project power and to ensure the protection of our security interests in the region. No, for sure. And if you look at our ability to, to not even withstand attrition and all that, because the inventories are so thin, we become self-deterred, so I completely agree. So a few weeks ago, Russian leaders claimed that they raised the alert status of their nuclear forces. You know, saber-rattling looks like what they call their escalate-to-de-escalate tactic. What does this mean in terms of how we should approach Russia when it comes to nuclear deterrence? And, and frankly, what do you think of the odds that Russia can resort to a limited nuclear strike on Ukrainian targets? Well, look, I, I think that's a great question. Uh, but I, I would note that deterrence is based on what the other guy thinks, not on what we think or on what we think he should think. It's hard to know what Vladimir Putin thinks at any given time. I can't get into his head, neither can anyone else. So I can't predict whether he would actually resort to the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine if he felt the need to escalate the conflict in the face of additional setbacks. But I would say this, Russia's military doctrine is pretty clear on the conditions for nuclear weapons use. And those conditions include non-nuclear threats that pose an existential threat to the Russian Federation. Now, if you follow Putin's statements about Ukraine, he has spoken as if Russia faces an existential threat. Therefore, if nuclear weapons are used, 
and no one, hopefully they won't be, but if nuclear weapons are used, I suspect they would likely be justified on those grounds and we would be portrayed as consistent with Russia's publicly expressed military doctrine. I find that incredibly worrisome. I would prefer that we be crystal clear in signaling that Russian use of nuclear weapons would have the severest of consequences. However, canceling a routine ICBM test out of fear that it would be seen as escalatory, I'm afraid, sends the opposite signal. Yeah, I really agree there. So, you know, as we all know, Ukraine used to be the third largest nuclear power in the world until it gave up its stockpiles in return for security assurances from both Russia and the West. And clearly, these assurances haven't been upheld in line with what Ukraine was expecting. So what do you think this means for how other nuclear ambitious or small nuclear powers will respond? You know, and I'm thinking specifically about Iran and North Korea, but it also applies to a country like China who is, is looking at, at growing their capability for, for different goals. And how do you think they might use this as a justification to keep building up uh, what they've got and are growing? Yeah, I think the concerns you raised are, are well-founded ones. The, the crisis in Ukraine has global implications uh, and Russia's invasion may spark the greatest surge in nuclear proliferation uh, in, in recent history, uh, you, you, hopefully it won't, but Ukraine surrendered its nuclear weapons back in 1994 in exchange for written guarantees by Russia and others that its sovereignty and territorial integrity would be protected, guaranteed, and that the use of force or the threat to use force would be prohibited. Russia, clearly violated those commitments. And as a consequence, other non-nuclear states may seek nuclear weapons to guarantee their own security, while nuclear weapon states may seek to increase their own nuclear stockpiles to ensure their own safety. As a result, we could be on the verge of a new round of what's been called the horizontal proliferation and vertical proliferation. Uh, I think uh, there are some in Ukraine clearly uh, who have asked, uh, would question whether or not it was wise for them to surrender their nuclear capabilities back in, in the 1990s in exchange for paper promises that the Russians have clearly broken. Yeah. Now, you've expressed skepticism in the past regarding the effectiveness of arms control agreements. In the case of China, do you think an arms control agreement to limit the number of nuclear weapons would work, or, or how would you approach this? Uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a really difficult problem. Uh, and I think the problem is made even more difficult by the lack of transparency on the part of the Chinese. That lack of transparency makes arms control any arms control, exceedingly difficult. Uh, but more, more fundamentally, I would argue, there's a, there's a larger problem than the lack of transparency. Uh, in my view, China's strategic goals simply do not align with ours. Uh, and what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we want to preserve the existing international order while China is seeking to overturn it. China is seeking to overcome what they refer to as a century of humiliation uh, and, and Western and American dominance. Uh, and as, as a consequence, it's hard for me to see uh, how arms control can be, uh, arms control with China can, can be successful, although clearly we have tried in the past. But arms control is likely to be ineffective at best and dangerous at worst, I would argue, when the parties to any negotiation lack a common objective. Uh, and and, and that, you know, that objective, the differences in approach between the United States and China, I think make any arms control effort with China uh, difficult at best and impossible uh, at, at worst. Now, I really 
agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think they're playing a winning hand, so uh, keep pressing, uh, and that they are playing to win, not to uh, to just maintain status quo. So, yeah, completely agree. What are other options we should consider to deter China from building up its nuclear forces? Uh, well, again, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, it's uh, and again, our purpose should be deterrence. Uh, we, we want to prevent aggression from China or, or, or Russia or, or, or other powers. Uh, and, and deterrence, as I, as I said, depends on what the other side thinks and, and, and what it will take for the other side to be deterred. That's up to them. That's up to the opponent. That's not up to us. We may think sometimes it's up to us, but it's really up to them. And it's difficult to know what is in Xi Jinping's mind but again, our objective should be to shape his, to try to shape his deterrence calculus such that China never believes its coercive nuclear threats would succeed. We want the Chinese leadership, we want the CCP to look at the situation with, with respect to Taiwan, with respect to other uh, nations in the region uh, and, and, and to say to themselves, not today we're not going to move militarily today. The risks, potential risks are greater than the potential benefits. Uh, and again, I, I think that requires a military presence on our part in the region. It requires working cooperatively and collaboratively with allies, especially in the region. Uh, and uh, it, it, it requires it, it requires effort. The, the, the problem with deterrence is we can never be sure when it succeeds. Why do I say that? I say that because you can never prove a negative. There's, 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 no, way of, there's no way of knowing with 100% certainty why something didn't happen, why an attack didn't take place. Was it because we had an effective deterrent? Was it for other reasons? We never really know when deterrence succeeds or why? What we do know is when it fails. We do know when it fails because conflict occurs. Uh, and and our, our job, our objective is to try to make sure we never get to the point of deterrence failure. Uh, that's gonna require an awful lot of work, I, I believe, especially in the current environment with respect to China, with China uh, building up as aggressively it's, as it has, uh, it's, uh, plethora of military capabilities, both conventional and nuclear. Yeah, no, and, and you add on the factor of, of the Afghan withdrawal, how it responded in Ukraine, and then signals that this defense budget sends. And, uh, you know, it comes down to will, and, and obviously how they could read us right now uh, might not be how we would, we would best like it. So, you know, an, another factor here is that deterrence isn't just about having a, a large nuclear stockpile. It also demands having a, a credible conventional force to deter an adversary. What are some of the most effective capabilities in this regard, in your view? And, you know, obviously, Russia and China are two different problem sets. So maybe we could start with what would be effective against Russia and then turn to China. Uh, well, look, on this, uh, you know, I would say I, I would give the administration a little bit of credit here uh, in terms of its, uh, it, its willingness to deploy additional forces, additional troops, uh, to Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, it's uh, working with uh, NATO allies, try to bolster NATO's deterrent. And, and now I wanna be clear here, uh, when I talk about deterrence failing in the case of Russia and its invasion with Ukraine, uh, I, I'm not so much talking about a failure of NATO's deterrent. NATO's deterrent is designed to deter aggression against NATO nations and partners. Uh, and NATO's deterrent has not failed, but the, the American deterrent, at least the publicly expressed actions that were taken to deter Russia did not succeed. That, that was a deterrence failure. So I think, I think bolstering uh, our presence, our military presence and our capability in Europe uh, is, is an important step. Working with allies in the NATO alliance is an important step. Likewise in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, as I said, bolstering our presence uh, uh, conducting uh, exercises with allies and strategic partners, Japan, Australia, Vietnam, 
others, uh, and uh, developing the kinds of advanced conventional capabilities that would be useful uh, to uh, deter any aggressive action uh, in the region would be important. I, I believe we need greater uh, ISR capabilities, intelligence surveillance and, and, and reconnaissance capabilities. I think we need an enhanced naval presence, uh, uh, as I said. Uh, there, there are a number of steps we can take, uh, and I believe should take, uh, in order to bolster our conventional deterrent, especially in a time like this, uh, when, when deterrence, as I said, I believe seems to be increasingly fragile. Uh, it's clear we need to do more. And, and whether we like it or not, that means we need to invest the necessary resources to develop those capabilities, get them out into the field as quickly as possible. Uh, that, that includes everything uh, from uh, offensive types of capabilities, conventional capabilities, to defensive types of capabilities, uh, improved missile defense capabilities and things like that. One of the things that I think is probably worth a re-examination now is U.S. policy literally for decades uh, on a bipartisan basis has been that we will not actively defend ourselves or seek to defend ourselves against the nuclear arsenals of either Russia or China. Uh, and uh, that decision was made uh, in, 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 the, in the interest of what was referred to as strategic stability. Strategic stability is basically a euphemism for allowing us to remain hostage to the other side's nuclear, uh, uh, nu nuclear weapons. Uh, and I, I think what we're witnessing, with what we're witnessing now, the growth in Russian and Chinese nuclear capabilities, I think it, it may be time really for us to consider how to bolster our missile defense capabilities, both regionally to protect friends and allies, to protect US deployed forces, as well as in defense of the homeland against more sophisticated capabilities being developed by, uh, by both Russia and China. That includes hypersonics. It includes the new types of nuclear systems uh, that, uh, uh, that Putin announced uh, several years ago that are not constrained uh, currently by the New START arms control treaty. Uh, so you know, I think there's a lot we can do. It will obviously take uh, additional resources uh, but I think uh, the investment is well worth it if the goal that we're seeking to accomplish is to prevent aggression uh, and uh, deter uh, major major conflict. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, we're happy that the FY23 budget makes substantial investments in modernizing the nuclear triad. But I just wanted to get your take. Do you think proposed funding levels are sufficient? And are there certain areas or legs of the triad that you would like to see more investment in? Well, look, I think, you know, uh, as I understand it, the, uh, uh, the FY23 uh, budget request uh, recommends uh, over $34 billion uh, for uh, modernizing the nuclear triad and, and, and undertaking necessary modernization efforts. Uh, I think that our modernization efforts uh, have, are, are long overdue. Modernization of the triad has, has, has been delayed uh, and delayed. We have historically, you know, if you look back, it, you know, modernized our, our triad of nuclear systems. Uh, generally, uh, every two decades, every 20 years or so, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we did that in the 60s. We did that in the 80s. We did not do that in the early 2000s. Uh, people refer to the high cost of nuclear modernization. Nuclear modernization is actually a fiscal bargain when you consider how much money is invested in that vis-a-vis -vis other elements of the defense establishment, conventional forces uh, and uh, other, uh, other piece parts of the defense budget. Uh, the entire nuclear modernization program is estimated uh, to, to, to uh, cost roughly uh, anywhere from three to six percent of the overall defense budget, uh, whether you're looking just at modernization or at modernization plus sustainment or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's still a relatively small fraction of what we spend on defense. 
part of the reason for the cost is that we've delayed so long uh, in, in taking necessary modernization steps that we are now facing a situation where all three legs of our strategic triad are facing block obsolescence simultaneously uh, and need to be replaced. They either need, we either need to modernize each leg of the triad or, or we will simply get out of the nuclear business. Uh, it was former uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter who basically laid, <laughs> laid that out publicly uh, by saying, this is, this is our choice and it's really a binary choice. We, we can either invest what we need to modernize our nuclear deterrent forces or simply get out of the business. Uh, I, I clearly would argue that uh, nuclear modernization is, is essential. Uh, we, we can afford the cost of nuclear modernization. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, well, well, we'll have to see what Congress does when it comes to support for the actual, the actual budget request. Uh, con Congress may uh, see fit as it did last year in increasing the, uh, the overall DOD budget beyond what the administration asked for. We'll see what happens with respect to the nuclear component. You, know, you asked, are there any specific areas of the triad that uh, deserve a greater investment? Uh, I, uh, uh, I think we should be focusing a lot of attention and resources on nuclear command and control, uh, nuclear command control and communications, the NC3 component. Uh, I, I think that's an essential glue that holds the various elements of the strategic triad together. It's not talked about much, uh, but, but it's critically important. Better intelligence uh, information also. I think there are things uh, that we can do. Uh, and, if, and if you look at the overall budget uh, for defense, uh, it may look like an increase uh, over, over uh, last year's total, but in reality, when you adjust for inflation, uh, the, the budget really doesn't, doesn't keep pace with inflation. Uh, in fact, I think it was both the Secretary of Defense uh, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs in testimony before the House Armed Services Committee earlier this week uh, acknowledged uh, that the uh, when the budget when uh, the budget request was prepared, it was prepared under the assumption that inflation would be somewhere around two percent or thereabouts. When in reality, inflation is running uh, closer to eight uh, percent, and 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 therefore, I would argue that the Congress really should take a very serious look at whether the resources being requested for the triad and for the other programs we need for effective, reliable, credible deterrence are in fact. Uh, uh, are in fact being budgeted for or whether there are some, some uh, uh, modifications that are necessary. I appreciate that. So based on the current threats we face, are we committing the required resources to field the deterrent force that can adequately cover our allies and partners under the nuclear umbrella? I mean, obviously, uh, as we discussed, proliferation might be an issue here in, in the near future, given dynamics we're observing, but how do you view this? Well, look, I think I would turn the question around a little bit. I, I, I think it's not so much a question of whether we're investing the necessary resources uh, to support our extended deterrent guarantees uh, to, uh, uh, to allies and, and strategic partners, but really whether our allies and partners believe that our nuclear umbrella, our extended deterrent is credible. Uh, and I think all of them look at you know, at, at what the United States is doing in response to Russian aggression, uh, what the United States is doing in terms of its national defense strategy, in terms of the nuclear posture review, uh, the classified version of which has been sent to Congress, uh, the uh, missile defense review. I think, I think allies and partners are very much focused on what the United States is doing and plans to do uh, as they make their own calculations as to how reliable the, uh, a partner the United States really is and how credible U.S. guarantees of theirs to protect their security when the chips are down uh, are, uh, you know, are uh, evident uh, or not. That's, that's really the issue. Uh, you know, I think it's less are we doing enough than it is do our allies and partners believe that what we're doing uh, 
is credible enough that our that our expressed guarantees to their security um, are, uh, are are believable. And 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 frankly, my concern is that there seems to be more and more concern on the part of friends and allies as to the credibility of the U.S. nuclear umbrella, our extended deterrent. Uh, you know, we have seen uh, in, in Japan, some, some leaders there talk about the possibility uh, of, uh, uh, of nuclear deployments, things that, things that Japan uh, of, of all countries has, has been the, the, the most resistant to anything nuclear uh, for understandable reasons. But now, there, recently there, there have been debates over whether Japan should rethink that status. South Korea also, uh, and uh, there were there were some uh, you know there was there were some comments on the part of the new the new president elect uh, in, in in South Korea su suggesting maybe it's time to rethink South Korea's posture on that. As I recall, there have been some some polls taken in South Korea suggesting a sizable number of South Koreans may even support the reintroduction of American nuclear weapons. On, uh, you know, in uh, in South Korea, um, I, I'm not saying any of these any of these things will come to pass, but I am saying it appears as though the contours of the debate have shifted and are shifting in a way that raises concerns in my mind and I think in the minds of others as to whether allies believe that the United States will continue to have their backs if the chips are down uh, or whether they need to, to take actions themselves to bolster their own deterrent, whether that's the acquisition of nuclear weapons or, 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 or uh, who, know, who knows what. I, I think that's a serious, that is a serious uh, real world concern. Uh, I think that's a great insight there. So you, you've written a lot regarding the different aspects uh, about deterrence, but how do you think technologies like non-traditional nuclear weapons, hypersonic capabilities change the paradigm and how we approach nuclear deterrence and missile defense? And does this mean that we need to evolve some of our concepts from ones that we've relied upon historically? Yeah, I do think we need to uh, think, think again about uh, what we need to uh, ensure the continued viability uh, of, of nuclear deterrence. Uh, and uh, you're right, the development of new technologies, hypersonics, for example, things like that, they don't change, in my mind, the fundamental nature of deterrence. Uh, the, the goals and objectives of deterrence are still, are still there. They, they remain valid. Uh, but uh, in light of new developments in, in technology, in, in post the postures of others, uh, yeah, I do think it, it makes sense to sort of rethink where we where we are and where we need to go. And that may mean, as, as I suggested earlier, uh, possibly rethinking our own homeland missile defense posture to see whether there's something else that we could or should do uh, to, to more effectively defend the American people against sort of growing nuclear threats that are emerging in Russia and, and, and China and who knows, who knows where else potentially. I think we should be exploiting uh, to, to the greatest ability possible uh, uh, advanced technologies on our side, like directed energy technologies, for example, for both offensive and defensive purposes. I do think we should, we should have a greater degree of flexibility in the kinds of systems we we build and deploy that that expand the range of options that are available to a president of the United States, any president of the United States. Uh, I think uh, we heard uh, uh, General Milley uh, talk about that uh, it, when uh, uh, when he testified the, the other day, how he believes it's important to give the president the full range of options. Uh, and I think there are ways to do that uh, with uh, newer technologies. Uh, we, we've done that in the past, actually. 
from, from the mid-70s on, the United States sought to develop limit, so-called limited nuclear options and things, just to be able to provide a president with flexibility uh, and to, to hopefully ensure that no opponent or adversary thinks they've got some kind of exploitable advantage at some level of conflict that would allow them to in, engage in aggression uh, with a lesser fear of, of American retaliation in kind. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for flexibility. I'm all for greater options. Uh, again, with the, with the purpose and objective, hopefully, of, of never having to use those, of never having to actually employ them, uh, but uh, having them for the purpose of trying to convince an adversary or an opponent that their use of, of those kinds of systems would be more costly than beneficial to them. Now, I think those are great points. So, sir, this is uh, the end of our uh, Q&A session. So I'm going to open the uh, session for questions from the audience who've been listening. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can participate in the question and answer session by using the raise hand function on the app, or you can also just text in your, uh, your questions to us. When I call on you, if you could unmute your mic and please state your name and affiliation before asking your question, I'd be appreciated. So with that, the first question I've got here, which is texted in, is actually about the Slickham issue, sir. And uh, the listener here is asking for you to kind of expand your thoughts on, on how you think uh, that might change the dynamics, um, risk reward. Yeah, uh, look, uh, I'm a supporter of the, uh, of the nuclear Slickham. Uh, I, uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, I, I was in the Pentagon during the Trump administration. And that was one of the supplemental, two su supplemental capabilities that we proposed uh, in the uh, in the uh, nuclear posture review. Uh, then, uh, the idea the idea behind the nuclear slickum is is to provide again, you know, as uh, as I said in my response to the previous question, a greater degree of flexibility and more options to hopefully ensure that deterrence is fortified and reliable. Uh, and, and that uh, no adversary believes uh, that it has the ability to use nuclear weapons even in a limited way. Uh, so uh, I think the, uh, I think the, uh, the Slickham N uh, is an important program to proceed with. I'm disappointed that apparently, according to the reports, the administration plans to, plans to cancel that program. I think it's also important from, uh, from an extended deterrence perspective as well, and, and from the perspective of assuring allies. Uh, I think that particular weapon system adds to the credibility of uh, our US extended deterrent guarantees. So uh, I think it's a, frankly a big mistake uh, if, if, if that system is canceled. And uh, uh, of course, there, it's led to some significant debate uh, in Congress and. You know, con Congress, uh, in its ultimate wisdom, can always decide what it is it wants to go ahead and fund or not fund. Uh, but but I hope this program uh, I hope this program will continue. Uh, it's 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 a modest program. Uh, it's 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 not as though the Russians don't have this kind of system. I don't think it's provocative. It's not going to spark an arms race. The Russians have nuclear armed cruise missiles. They've had them for years. I am frankly at a loss to understand why it's okay for the Russians to have a system that we cannot, or why you know that our development of that system would be provocative or destabilizing or upset strategic stability or, or, or whatever terminology you want to use. Uh, I I don't think so at all. So you know my short my short answer to the question is uh, I'm a strong supporter of it. Uh, I think it makes sense for multiple reasons, and uh, uh, I hope we can continue to go forward with it. No, appreciate that. Got another question here, and, and this really ties to both Ukraine and, and then applying kind of some of the lessons to the Pacific. With land routes of communication open to sections of Ukraine, it facilitates uh, real-time resupply for a lot of key military systems. You look at Taiwan, we're obviously an island, it becomes much harder. How does that factor into how we look at deterrence in that equation and how we might need to forward lean um, equipping them to, to deter Chinese action. 
No, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are certain things that I think we can do, but there are certain things that Taiwanese also uh, could and should do uh, uh, as well. Look, the Taiwan Strait is not, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy body of water to get across, at least that, that, that's my understanding. So uh, there, the, uh, the PRC would have some difficulty in doing that. But that difficulty can be can be complicated. Uh, can be complicated by the Taiwanese. It can be complicated by the assistance that we and other countries are willing to provide to, to the Taiwanese to defend their own territory uh, and uh, and sovereignty. Uh, we look at what's going on in Ukraine, and and we see a, a lot of things that I think a number of analysts may not have anticipated. A lot of civilians basically taking up arms. A lot of sort of irregular types. Uh, of, of combat with the Ukrainians pushing back uh, against the Russians, uh, against the Russian invading force. Uh, I think there are asymmetric measures that the Taiwanese can take. There, there are unconventional warfare types of tactics uh, that can be used. It's not just, not just you know, uh, trying to prevent an amphibious assault on the island, but it's doing other things, uh, you know, essentially uh, to make uh, what uh, some analysts have suggested to, you know, to make uh, Taiwan basically indigestible to, to, to the PRC uh, in such a way that China is deterred from taking that action in, in the first place. That, you know, that's what deterrence is all about, obviously. And uh, I, think there, I do think there's a lot more that we can do. I think there's a lot more that the Taiwanese can do themselves and should do. And I think there's a lot more that we can do uh, in collaboration with uh, allies and partners in the region also to bolster the deterrent effect against any Chinese move on Taiwan. Appreciate that. Question here about the new Sentinel, uh, GBSD. Given that it's a, a very modernized capability versus our, our current ICBM system, are there key facets that we need to make sure our adversaries particularly understand to ensure that we really enjoy the, the deterrent advantage it, it would give us through these new capabilities? Well, I have to say, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not a I'm not a technical expert uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, my, my understanding is that the GBSD uh, involves a degree of modularity, uh, which 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 makes sustainment easier and you know, and things like that. Uh, I'm a supporter of, of of the newly named Sentinel program. Uh, I th I think it is critical uh, to get that developed and in the field. Uh, as soon as soon as possible, um, uh, I've said. Others have said uh, for for some time now that we're basically out of margin when when it comes to uh, modernization of the nuclear triad. Uh, the land-based missile component of our triad is critically important, I believe, for deterrence purposes. Uh, I do not believe, as some have called for, uh, we should eliminate the uh, the ICBM. Uh, leg uh, of, of the triad. Uh, it is the most responsive leg of the triad. It is accurate. Uh, it presents an adversary uh, with literally hundreds of targets on the U.S. homeland that they would have to strike. They would have to factor that into their own deterrent calculus before even contemplating uh, an attack on the United States. So the ICBM leg, for, for multiple reasons, uh, is, a, is a great part uh, of the uh, U.S. strategic nuclear triad and GBSD, the new Sentinel uh, system, uh, I think, uh, based on my understanding of it, uh, will be a much needed, uh, well-improved system over the uh, aging Minuteman III ICBMs uh, that we've relied on literally for decades. So uh, I hope we go forward with that expeditiously. Yep. Question here, um, and it's a bit counterintuitive considering our, our normal posture on this issue as a country, but would it actually be in our advantage if certain allies were to actually build their own nuclear deterrent capability? Question here uh, focuses specifically on Japan, given its proximity to China. Your thoughts on that? Obviously a complex yeah. issue. Yeah, it is a complex issue, and it's an excellent question. You know, and I, frankly, I've been asking myself that question for quite some time. U.S. nonproliferation policy has consistently, over decades, been we want to we want to uh, prevent uh, other countries from going nuclear. 
uh, from getting from from getting nuclear weapons. Uh, but again, I do think it's there's a legitimate concern out there on the part of others as to how much faith and credence they can put in American guarantees to them to protect their, their security. So it, it is a complex issue. I'm not necessarily a fan of, of nuclear proliferation. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not eager necessarily to see uh, a host of other countries go nuclear, so to speak. However, however, uh, if other countries decide that the United States can no longer be adequately relied on to protect their own security in extremists, uh, then I think a decision for them to go nuclear, if that's taken, would be perfectly understandable. I, you know, I, I, you know, I don't see how we can, on the one hand, say we don't want you to develop or deploy nuclear weapons, uh, while at the same time they say, yeah, but we don't think we can count on you, the United States, uh, to use nuclear weapons on our behalf especially if we face a nuclear armed aggressor, whether it's China, China or Russia. It is, a, it, look, it's a, it's a complex issue, but you know, I, you know, I think we have to look at it, not only in terms of what US policy has been or should be, but in terms of how others see the United States and the reliability of our security guarantees to them. It's, it's, it's a tough issue, admittedly. I appreciate it. Time for one last question. I'm going to wrap with, with one, one here that really hits on the issue that clearly with deterrence changing a lot, given all the factors we've discussed in, in many ways, are there different arguments that we should be taking to the American public and to Congress to move us past ones that have been time tested throughout the Cold War, but may no longer resonate or necessarily apply very well? Yeah, uh, also also an excellent question. And part of the problem, I think, is that since the end of the Cold War, we in general as a society have spent very little time uh, talking about, thinking about, or sort of understanding fundamental deterrence principles. Those principles really haven't changed since the Cold War. What has changed is that domestically, at least, our focus has been elsewhere. Once the Cold War ended, once the Soviet Union essentially disintegrated, uh, we, we in the United States, by and large, felt we had the luxury of turning our attention to other things. It's only more recently with the resurgence of, of, of a very aggressive Russia uh, and, and a very <clears throat> aggressive China that we are now thinking again about deterrence. So I would say it's not really so much <clears throat> that, the, that the old theories of deterrence no longer apply. Uh, I think many of them do apply. Uh, we have new means technological and, 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 and otherwise for, for affecting them. Uh, but you know, I, th I think what's changed is that now, now there's a greater awareness. And I think it's, it's a more appropriate awareness on the need to sort of refocus our attention uh, on sort of a, a discipline, uh, an area of study, if you will, uh, that was long neglected uh, over decades once the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union went away. So, you know, uh, I, I think this series, this deterrent series uh, that, that the Mitchell Institute carries out uh, is part and parcel of, of, of really a necessary and important effort, educational effort, to bring these issues into sharp focus uh, for, uh, for, for everyone else. So I applaud you for doing it. Uh, and again, I, I thank you for allowing me, me the opportunity to share some views uh, on these, uh, what I think are, are very critical issues. Now, Sarah, we really appreciate it. With that, we've come to the end of this edition of our uh, Strategic Deterrence Forum and, and can't thank you enough, sir, for spending time with us today and sharing your insights on these, on these important topics. For our audience, our next Strategic Deterrence Forum will take place on April 24th with Dr. Peter Pryth, the Executive Director of the Task Force on National and Homeland Security and the Director of the United States Nuclear Strategy Forum. We hope you can join us for that. And finally, from all of us at Mitchell Institute, have great aerospace power kind of day. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Doug.